This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Lale Arikoglu, and welcome to a new episode of Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. Before we begin, we're asking for your feedback on our show. We'd love to know what stories you'd like to hear, what you've enjoyed the most and the least. So go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. This week's show is about two adventures along the Colorado River, the first in 1938 and the second in 2021. I never imagined doing a trip like that. But I had to. I had to follow in the footsteps of these two women and find out what they experienced when they went on that journey in 1938. Science journalist Melissa Sevigny lives in Flagstaff, Arizona, and grew up in Tucson, meaning the Grand Canyon was never too far away, but she'd only ever seen it like a tourist. So her decision to go down to the river level and run rapids in a two-person rubber boat was definitely not something she'd tried before. I was going to have to run the Grand Canyon. That was not on my radar. It was never on my bucket list. You know, I certainly went into that trip with a, a, a fair amount of imposter syndrome. I've never run a river before. I'm not a botanist. I felt very intimidated by the whole concept of being able to contribute to this scientific expedition I was on and be useful and not lose my head if something went wrong. Where I grew up in the desert, I would think of rivers as being dry riverbeds you know, rivers of sand. And it, it never really occurred to me as a child that you could put a boat on a river and go on a boat trip. So this is the first time that I've, I've done a river trip, this trip through the Grand Canyon of Arizona. I have to admit, I have lived in the US for a little over a decade now, and I have still never been to the Grand Canyon and I've never seen the Colorado River, which I actually think is the case for also many Americans who were born here. The country is so vast and it just feels like it's almost mythologized now as this great natural thing that you can go see and experience. And you got to know it very well. Most people see the Grand Canyon from the South Rim, Grand Canyon National Park South Rim. And if you see a photograph of the Grand Canyon, that's probably where the photo was taken, right? You see all of those banded colors and all of these layers. That's kind of the classic Grand Canyon view. And the incredible thing is if you're standing on the rim looking down, it's actually quite hard to see the river. You know, you hear about this 
powerful river that carved the Grand Canyon, but it's way, way down at the bottom, a mile down, and it looks like just this little silver thread. Melissa's book, which came out earlier this year, is called Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. Melissa retraces an expedition where two women mapped the ecosystem of the Colorado River. She researched 1938 newspaper stories disparaging Elzada Clover and Lois Jotter. Reporters called them school moms, but they were academic botanists with a thirst for exploration. I wanted to have the experience of actually working on a Grand Canyon trip, so I would I would have a better idea of what it was like for Elzada Clover and Lois Jotter, who were trying to collect plants while getting their boats down the river. So I joined up with a botany crew in 2021. We went down the river and our job was to weed. <laughs> our job was to weed the Grand Canyon, which sounds a little silly, but the Grand Canyon has non-native plants that don't belong there that disrupt the ecology. And we were looking for one in particular called Ravenna grass. It sounds like it might be small and easy to weed, but it can actually grow to like the size of a Christmas tree and take a little bit of effort to find them and get them out. And so I was on a, a six-person crew. We had three boats, and, uh, and we rode through the Grand Canyon for two weeks looking for this grass and weeding it out. You're doing this volunteering. You're looking for this weed. How, as you're doing it all, are you also, for your book and for your research, channeling Lois and Azelda? Yeah, I really did feel like I was channeling them. I had this little notebook in my pocket that um, it's a write in the rain notebook. It's supposed to. Oh, I have that notebook. I (laughs) use that. I used it for the Amazon. (laughs) It's nice. It's supposed to like kind of not wash away when it gets wet. I have to say it's it's right in the rain. It's not right in the rapid. And uh, I got soaked going through the rapids and a lot of the words washed away. Um, And because of that, every night I would stay up late with a flashlight and I copy it into a bigger notebook. And just make a lot of notes, you know. I had marked down on my my map of the Grand Canyon places where these two women, Elzada and Lois, saw or experienced certain things. And when I got home, I uh, actually kind of went through it and I typed up the bits that I thought I could use. I'm going to get more to their story in a bit because it is truly fascinating. Um, but I want to know a little bit more about your experience first. I mean, it's an extraordinary journey. I don't think many people get to do that. And also, I didn't, I think I quite understood how big, the, this sounds really silly, but like how big the Grand Canyon is, not in, in the depth, but in the, the length of it. Yeah, it's, it's huge. Um, it takes about two weeks on an oar trip. So a trip where, where they're rowing the boats with oars to get through the Grand Canyon. It just keeps going and going. And you um, were using oars. Well, not me personally, but my <laughs> boatman, the person who was rowing my boat, was using the oars. Yes. Yeah. So they weren't very big boats. They're these kind of rubber rafts and there would be two of us in a boat, one person rowing and me um, bailing. I, my job was to, one of the boats didn't, uh, didn't bail itself. So I had to bail it. With a, with a bucket anytime we went through a rapid. I was going to say what is bailing because in my head it's sort of very much like a pirates at sea throwing water yes, out Yes, that's exactly boat. what it is. We would go through a rapid, the boat would fill up with water and as we were still going through the rapid I would get the bucket and I'd toss all that water out because it makes the boat very heavy and hard to maneuver. Were you comfortable on the rapids? Did they feel scary? 
I was terrified. I, I had never done anything like that before. I'm kind of actually honestly relieved to hear you say that because you were <laughs> speaking about it with such authority and confidence. I was like, oh God, I'm like such a weed because I would be terrified. <laughs> no, I was terrified. I think it was good that I was terrified because um, I'm sure Lois and Alzada must have been terrified too. Like they were going down the river at a time when you know, hardly anybody had done this trip and there weren't really good maps and there were these clunky wooden boats and they must have been terrified. And so I'm, I'm glad I felt that way um, because I think I was able to channel what they felt on their trip. How long did it take you to feel like you could take this constant sort of tirade against you of these rapids? It took me about three days to unhinge my brain from all of my worries and my nervousness and to really be present in in what I was experiencing. And, you know, the nervousness never exactly went away, particularly when we would hit a rapid that had a lot of stories around it. Some of the rapids in the Grand Canyon have their own mythology. A lot of terror stories about things that went wrong. Was there a particular one that had been really sort of mythologized for you all that you were kind of building yourselves up to? I mean, the big one is Lava Falls, and it comes very late in the trip. It's kind of one of the last big rapids that you reach in the Grand Canyon. And there's an expedition that's going just ahead of us, and one of their boats flips over in the rapid. Oh my gosh. A pretty bad thing to have happen. And everybody's fine. There, there are no injuries. You know, everyone does what they, they're supposed to do in an emergency, and they, they get to safety. But watching that happen just ahead of me, I was like, I do not want to have that happen to my boat. I have very little confidence in my skills as a swimmer. But you made it over. Yeah, we roared right through that rapid and it was it was okay. And you didn't flip the whole trip? We didn't flip the whole trip. Thank goodness. That would I I mean that would have just been the thing I was winding myself up about. I remember like when I was learning how to kayak, given it was in like freezing cold England, it wasn't very glamorous, but being taught what to do if you capsize and how to like push yourself out of the kayak. And it was one of the most claustrophobic things I've ever done. I hated it. Oh, yeah. Um, so I can't can't imagine what it would be like to be on a on a rapid. Yeah, there's a sense of if that river grabs me and wants to keep me, there's not much I can do about it. There were a few drowning deaths that had occurred. And there was one... Um, one expedition that got caught in a landslide that came down the the side of the cliffs and um, took them out, took out their camp, and uh, someone died in that that experience. And they were doing nothing wrong; they hadn't camped in a in a bad spot. I mean, running the river today is much much safer, you know. But it didn't feel like that to me because I was really like mentally living in 1938. And so just in case, you know, I wrote a letter to my husband telling him a bunch of practical things about, you know, computer passwords and and whatnot, but also telling him, you know, that I loved him just in case I didn't come back. And uh, I put that in, in my safe before I went on the journey and told a friend that it was there. Did you let him read it once you got back safely? No, he he didn't read it. I- <laughs> I would be, I would be like, part of me would be like, I want you to see how much I care. (laughs) (laughs) No, he hasn't read it. I think it might still be in there. After the break, reading the diaries and letters from Elzada Clover and Lois Jutter to find out how they camped, what they ate, and how they almost didn't make it. (laughs) 
You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Lois Inazelda, the subjects of your book and the whole reason why you embarked upon this trip, tell me about them. Who were they? So Elzada Clover and Lois Jotter were two botanists from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And in 1938, they cooked up this somewhat crazy plan to run the Grand Canyon and make a plant collection there. And this had never been done before. No botanist had ever done that trip. And it was a time when people just really weren't doing river trips. You couldn't just sign up to go down the river. They partnered up with a man named Norm Nevels, who had an idea of starting commercial river running expeditions in the Grand Canyon, which had never been tried before. And they built some boats and they recruited some people to row them. And off they went down the river. No experience. Nobody in this trip had ever done whitewater river rafting before really didn't know what they were getting into. Alzada Clover was 41 years old at the time of this river trip, and uh, she had been born on a farm in Nebraska. She could shoot a gun, she could ride a horse, you know, very like Indiana Jones kind of kind of attitude um, towards the world, and she was obsessed with plants. At some point, she fell in love with cactus, and she decided she wanted to make a collection of all of the cactus in the Southwest. And so she went to the University of Michigan. She got her PhD in botany, which was pretty unusual for women at the time. Lois Jotter was one of her kind of students and, and mentees at the University of Michigan. She was 24 years old in 1938. She described herself as being bookish and a bit of a klutz. And she went into this with a certain amount of trepidation about what she was getting into. Clover decided to invite Jotter along so they could kind of chaperone one another on this trip. And uh, 
Jodder had to spend a lot of time writing letters to her family to convince them that it was going to be okay. Lois packed all of her stuff up in boxes before she left, and she labeled the boxes, and she told her roommate what to do with them if she never came this back. This is like your letter. Just like you my letter. You kind of did the same. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. I mean, yeah, I really channeled what she was feeling. You know, I felt that, right? In their diaries, did you get a sense that they knew they were doing something quite unusual? Yes. Yeah, I did. But they focused mostly on the botany and not on their gender. There was actually a a pretty clear rejection that their gender was what was unusual about the trip. The journalists who covered the trip, and there were a lot of them, it was national front page headlines for quite a while, really focused on the fact that these were the first two non-Native women to make this journey. And uh, Elzada Clover in particular really hated that about the press. She wanted the focus to be on the fact that it was the first botany collection ever made at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. She tried to convince the journalists to cover it from that point of view, and that really never happened. Lois writes about getting her hands all cut up and bleeding while she's trying to put all of those stacks of plants and paper together between two pieces of wood. And you can imagine doing that with a cactus. Pretty tricky, finicky work, you know. Their journey was considerably longer than mine. They ran through three canyons on the Colorado River in Utah and Arizona, Cataract, Glen, and Grand Canyon. It took them 42 days to make that trip. There were six people in all and three boats, just like on my my journey down the river. But their boats were wooden boats and uh, had been sort of scrapped together by the person running the expedition. And Lois actually wrote that when they first put the boats in the water, she, was, she wasn't entirely sure they were going to float. So when they, when they hit their first rapids, they hit it at very high water. It's monsoon season in the southwest, which means it's, it's raining, big thunderstorms. They lose a boat, it runs away from them, and they have to chase it. They capsize in one of the rapids. There's a couple of points where they end up widely separated from one another. And uh, everything takes so much longer than they're expecting. They start running low on food. Really, especially the first half of the trip, they they weren't prepared for what they were going to find. If they were running low on food, I mean, what were they eating? Everything was canned. So they had canned peaches and canned peas and canned butter. I don't oh, know what gosh. that was like. They had um, rye crisp crackers, which were a brand of cracker that was actually um, marketed as a diet food. <laughs> At the time, this is not what you want to be eating when you're doing hard work. Not fuel, right? (laughs) No no fuel, yeah. So that's fun. They had Klim, which is a a brand of powdered milk. Klim is milk backwards. And they they would stir it into cups of river water. They would have to drink the water out of the river. Today you do that as well, but you treat it. Um, You've got all this fancy stuff you can add to the water that makes the dirt settle out and cleans it all up and makes sure, you know, it's safe to drink. Um, it's a whole process, right? But then they didn't have all of that stuff. There'd be all this mud on the bottom of the bucket, and they'd, they'd take the top of water off, and they would stir in this powdered milk. And that was a pretty typical lunch for them. Powdered milk, crackers, maybe a can of fruit. For contrast, what were you eating? Because I imagine you weren't, I mean, you said you weren't sitting with a bucket of water waiting for the mud to settle, and you no. probably weren't eating canned peaches. No, we we had wonderful meals on my trip. I was really quite impressed. Um, but I, I did almost none of the cooking on my trip. They were very kind, um, the the boatmen who were rowing the boats on my my expedition. And we had we had great meals. I mean, we had fresh eggs, you know, to make eggs in the morning and 
steak dinners and um yeah it was it was pretty nice that's fantastic and i was so hungry i mean you're out you're out in the sun and the water all day and you're doing work and you're bushwhacking around in the thickets and i would eat everything that was put in front of me and i have no idea how clover and jotter did it <laughs> coming up how their expedition impacted alzada and lois's careers and what melissa's trip has meant for her Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Like you said, to them, the most important thing was the science and it was the botany, the goal and intention of this trip. Did they achieve what they set out to do and what was the sort of legacy they left behind? They collected more than 400 species of plants. Those physical plant specimens are still in herbaria today all over the country. So they're still available for researchers to use today. Do they deserve to be more famous? I mean, clearly you've kind of you've been able to tell their story, but I mean, it feels like everyone, people should know them. I think so, right? I mean, yeah, I think they have an incredible story. We wouldn't have any idea what the plant life in this region looked like before Glen Canyon Dam was built. Glen Canyon is a giant dam. Behind it is the second largest reservoir in the entire country. It's right at the head of the Grand Canyon. It changed everything about the ecology of this river. And nowadays, scientists spend a lot of time trying to figure out how that dam changed things and how we can manage it differently to protect the ecology of this incredibly iconic place, you know, the Grand Canyon. What happened to them after? I mean, they both had a lot of life to live after this trip. Elzada Clover stayed at the University of Michigan for her entire career. She taught generations of students. She traveled all over the, the country and the world collecting cactus. Some of those still grow at the Botanical Gardens in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And eventually she retired to Texas, where she could be out west, close to her cactus. Um, she died well into her 80s, I believe it was. Lois Jodder kind of took her life in a different direction. Not long after the river trip, she got married. She had two children. She returned to the University of North Carolina to teach botany and environmental science and biology. And she got a chance to run the Grand Canyon one more time in 1994 at the age of 83. Oh my God, I love this. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, a, a group of scientists had gotten together and decided that they wanted to know what the river used to look like before that big dam was built at the head of the Grand Canyon. And so they invited Lois Judder to come back on this trip because she could tell them what it used to look like half a century before. The trip is a lot more recent for you. What impact has it had on you and do you think it's going to be long lasting? I think doing it helped a great deal with my own self-confidence in situations like that. Um, it sounds silly, but I think we, we all need that sometime. sometimes. We need to prove to ourselves that we can do difficult and scary things that are outside of our comfort zone. 
I mean, being at the bottom of the Grand Canyon is a life-changing experience. Something about your perception changes. After about three days, you really forget what the outside world is like. You're completely cut off. There's no cell phone. There's no texting. You know, there's nothing but the river and the cliffs and the animals and the plants. And sleeping and rising with the sun and looking forward to the next rapid and the next meal. And you feel very human. I know that sounds strange, but it was like a revelation. It's like, this is what being a human is supposed to feel like. And it's so hard to come back to the outside world and to look around you at all of the strange markers we have of time. I was coming out in October around Halloween and there were Halloween decorations and there were pumpkin spice lattes in the stores. And these these markers that we have of time make no sense. What makes sense is the sunrise and the sunset and the way the colors of the light change the canyon walls. I could have sat and watched that all day and never gone bored. So, yeah, it did change my life um, in ways that I think I'll still discover as time goes on. How often do you think about the Grand Canyon? So I, I miss it, especially this time of year when the fall rolls around. I, I took my trip in October and sometimes a, a scent or a smell or something will take me right back there and yeah, there's kind of a longing. Both Clover and Jodder describe that coming out of the river, this instantaneous longing to go back. And I don't know if I'm ever going to make it back. Um, it's not necessarily easy or inexpensive to get on a, a river trip. So, um, so I don't know if I'll have that opportunity again. But I do think about it a lot. Well, thank you so much for telling me all about it and taking me there. This was just such a fascinating and exciting conversation. I mean, I kind of felt like I was in a movie. Next week, the power and playfulness of an iconic cosmetic, eyeliner. Join us as Zara Hankir explores the intersections of beauty with health, spirituality, and freedom around the world, from the hair salons of Iran to the streets of Tokyo. See you then. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Kuroga. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Duke Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. See you next week. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but the Life Kit podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit podcast from NPR.